Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Boxes and Lines, welcome. It's been a long time. Did, was that time. your Halloween start? You I, know, don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I'm just very excited. Okay. Because well, it's been a long time. He's very happy. We've got a great show lined up for you today. Joining us for the first time on the podcast is Mike Singh. Michael's a seasoned expert in the world of finance, particularly in the realms of equity execution and market structure. And he's a friend of IEX. And, and I'll tell I you why. just learned is originally from the old sod from Ireland. We're going to let you speak in a minute, correct? Mike. Yes. He looks like he's about yep. to like yeah. violently jump through the screen okay. as we say this. <laughs> Uh, but I have a great relationship with Mike, and I figure I'll give a little bit of background to the listeners. He's over 30 years in the biz, working as a managing director at Goldman Sachs, as head of sales and co-head of European Electronic Trading at Virtu, and as global head of execution services at Redburn. He is now the founder of Kender Partners Limited, which is focused on making things fairer and clearer in the market for publicly listed companies. Fairer. Well, that's a, we we love cut, that because yes. we are also about making yeah. things fairer and I wonder if you got clearer. that from us. Anyway. Maybe. Well, I, I'm sure he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> Let me intro Mike a little more. <laughs> His work always finds its way into academic research, specifically when it comes to market anomalies and the weird stuff that happens with stock prices and the intricacies of share buyback. We're happy to have him here. Oh, Mike, sorry for that. And uh, thank you for joining us and not hanging up immediately after you've heard JR's shite Irish accent. Mm-hmm. But welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah. Take it easy on me. First time. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. We'll be very nice to you. Do you want to ask the first question, John? Oh, you want me to ask that? Oh, I, I can ask pre- the first question. Okay, that. well, That's I'll fine. Go. No, I can do it. I can do it. Well, I know Mike very well. So All Mike right. and I have traveled around Europe mm-hmm. while I have been at IX and while Mike was actually at Goldman, Virtue, mm-hmm. and Redburn. And we've met many of the buy side in London, Edinburgh, Paris, Frankfurt, Stockholm, wow. Amsterdam. Wow. Jesus, we well, did a lot, Mike. That's yeah, uh, I even did very IX, impressive. I seem to remember. Oh, the yeah. Last, and the last he, day of one of the weeks, I was so knackered, he did the pitch where he got up and drew the IEX model <laughs> with, <laughs> while being paid by Goldman. <laughs> I, I swear on my life. It was you actually pretty classic. Yeah. You then stitched me up with the last bloody question. You asked yeah. me how come the speed bump was 350. Oh, million. yeah. I oh. actually heckled oh. him. <laughs> What an asshole. But, yeah, um, well, there you go. I, I think you knew the answer. No, I found out it was twice the speed of the low late, the, the, the backup latency or something weird like that. I can't remember. But. Yeah, it was, a, it was a little longer than our longest backup route to Nisey, which oh, was 338 right. See, microseconds. I mean, that shows how ignorant I am. I didn't know that. Okay, ignorant yeah. man. Do you think you All can right. read a yes, question? Yes, I can. So, so Mike. <laughs> um, you have written extensively about share buybacks in recent years. I know I've, I've talked to you about this topic too. Um, so I know, I know that you um, know probably more than almost anybody else about that. Can you explain how the uh, process of share buybacks um, typically works and maybe a little bit about uh, for the uninitiated, just the inefficiencies um, and problems that you see in the way that buybacks are done today? Yeah, and I, I would I would couch that, Mike, that we have some very intelligent listeners that listen in on this podcast, but they don't always know the industry jargon. So if you could. Right. There's about six questions in there. Yep. Um, I mean, sh- okay. we'll be back so- in about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, We're going to get a beer. Yeah. I kissed Lonnie Stone a few too many times. 
I grew up about uh, 15 miles from it. So, See, he's um, actually Irish, John, not like you. Uh, let the man speak. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm called a plastic paddy in Ireland because uh, I feel very Irish having grown up in Ireland, but my accent uh, would be anything but. So the Irish <laughs> don't think I'm Irish. So. Yeah, I but, thought he was English when I first met him, but then he assured me. Yeah, you You're okay, Mike. Right, so share buybacks are very straightforward insofar as you know companies are just buying back their own shares. So from the perspective of a, you know, it's a very much an everyday behavior, but obviously this wrapped up in a little bit more regulation uh, from the perspective of, uh, you know, there's a different set of rules. I should probably tell you like how I sort of started to look at it because I've spent my whole career in on the sort of on the sell side, dealing with the public side of, of, of execution. So, you know, my client base historically has been everything from asset managers to brokers to retail aggregators, that sort of side of things, hedge funds, that stuff. Um, I've never dealt directly with a corporate and, you know, never sort of interacted on share buybacks before I started started on this, this journey. But I was working for, uh, for a company and we sold ourselves, the last firm I worked at, we sold ourselves to, to a bank. And the bank sort of asked me, uh, if I could help them build, their bankers were asking me could I, if I could help them build pitch books so that uh, the bank could sell you know, the, the broker's execution service, like the continuous market execution service, to their mm-hmm. corporate clients. And we got on to talking about share buybacks very quickly. And mm-hmm. you know, to cut to the chase, I sort of said, look, why don't we have a look at a few pitch books that other investment banks uh, use to sell share buyback products to, and then we can sort of build something from there. Mm-hmm. And what I saw was completely different to what I expected to see in terms of the execution products which were sold. So I was expecting the sort of, you know, the sort of the normal, what I would call normal execution strategies, um, you know, to do with, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you navigate buying a large value of shares in a market versus trying to minimize the impact you have when you're doing it? Mm-hmm. And the solutions I saw were very different to that. So, you know, that's how I ended up sort of starting and sort of exploring this process. And what I saw, I didn't like. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the questions I was asking were things like, how can we not provide the similar types of execution service and products and also access to liquidity that we do to our institutional shareholders? How come we can't provide that to, you know, to corporates? So I don't know if I've asked your question, but well, well, yeah, I, I mean, as I understand it, from what I hear you're saying, that the, the with the way, at least according to your perception, the large firms that were providing uh, buyback ser- services, so far as you could tell, were not doing so in a way that was calculated to really maximize the benefits to the corporate client. Um, I, yeah. I, I, assume, I assume the contra to that is, in some sense, maximize the benefit to the uh, service provider or the bank that was providing the services, but to the uh, detriment of the, the yeah. client. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for for uh, service providers maximizing their own margin, yeah. but it's got to be conditional on providing a, an excellent service. And the if you if you think about what you're trying to do, if you're a corporate, you're trying to you know, buy back your own shares. You know, you, I think you should think about it in exactly the same manner as if you're an investor trying to buy a stake in a company. It's exactly the same problem. We should solve it in the same way. There are different parameters that you need to deal with because of you know, the market abuse regulations and all those sorts of things. 
but the problem's the same problem. So you should address it yeah. in the same way. And and I take it that I mean maybe there's other problems or issues, but I, I take it that one of the problems or concerns um, in executing any kind of algorithmic trading strategy is you want to avoid signaling, right? Or you want to avoid um, uh, activities that notify other people in the market what you're about um, and wh- where the price is likely to go, and allow them to exploit that information in ways that that hurt your objective. I think think it's a little more basic than that though, right? So when Mike was on the sell side and talking to big institutional investors, and if a big institutional investor wanted to buy, let's make a numbers up, $50 million notional of company ABC, they would go to a broker and they would get a very different service than if the company ABC goes, hey, I want to buy back 50 million notional of mine, right? And mm-hmm. the original idea, because we have we have similar rules over here, Mike. I I, I I mean, I don't know if that's in our questions here, but I'd be curious the difference between the U.S. and Europe. But of course, there are protections in place so ABC doesn't inefficiently buy 50 million dollars notional of their stock and cause the stock price to jump up. Like, there's rules around that. But then I think you know uh, what we've talked about and what you've looked into is. As a result, maybe the corporates, the ABCs of the world, are slightly taking advantage in how people handle their orders. Yeah, correct. I mean, there's well, there's a whole there's a whole See, John? See, <laughs> for fuck's sake, I I, underst- I understood the point. Yeah, I don't know. He Please, went on a rambling speak. road. Let Sorry, him speak, Mike. I apologize for John. Please let him speak. <laughs> so the the market abuse rules for share buybacks vary juris- jur- you know, by the different jurisdictions, but they're yeah. essentially the same thing. Through my mind, there's actually no need for having specific you know, market abuse rules for corporates themselves. The way they're structured is they're structured for the safe harbors, both in Europe, the UK, and also uh, in the US. And so as long as you stay within very, very specific set of parameters, which essentially try and control for, for three things, really. One is what percentage of volume are you? The second bit is when during the day are you trading? That varies quite a lot, but in the U.S., you can't trade in the open and the auctions, the opening auction yeah. and the mm-hmm. closing auction. And then the last one is, is you know, a rule which is to try and stop you from driving the share price higher. Right. Um, you know, so what I call the plus tick rule, from the perspective of if you short sell in the U.S., you can only short sell on a plus tick. If you're doing a share buyback, you can't create the plus tick. Correct. Um, you know, so they're very sensible rules, but. You know, every other investor and every broker has to stay within a very, very similar set of rules, but they're just less defined. So you can't manipulate the market as the general rules we all have to abide by. You know, there's a subset uh, specific for share buybacks. Now, you don't have to stay inside them if you're a company doing your share buyback. It just means if you do stay inside them, you're protected from from any you know, as you guys would call it, any litigation. Right. And I th- and certainly in the U.S., um, everybody sort of tries their best to stay within the safe harbor because, it, because it's really a safe harbor from the anti-manipulation provisions and nobody wants to yep. come anywhere close to being conf- you know, accused of. But you're, but you're right, Mike. I mean, in the U.S., that the driving purpose behind these rules was really around the concern that companies – because companies, all things equal, prefer that their stock price be higher rather than lower, would use these kind of programs in order to push prices higher. Yeah. And so the, trying to guard against that. Yeah. But the, the sort of specific issues that I'm calling out within the, the, the subset of products which are, which are, which are sold to, to corporates, there's some parts of it which are absolutely fantastic for corporates and I think generally for the market. And that's the 
you know, the products basically abstract away all of these problems uh, from the corporate in terms of staying within the safe harbor rules and, and all those things, and also allows the corporate to trade in, you know, what's called a quiet period. So as soon as the, you know, after the company has published its numbers, you've got a very small window where the corporate can can do transactions in their own shares before they sort of fall back into a, you know, a quiet period again. And these products allow the corporates to trade within the quiet period. So they can basically continuously trade, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, so all that stuff is fine. But what the problem is, is that embedded within these products is an underlying execution strategy, which doesn't align with the requirements of the company, but specifically their board, in terms of the governance responsibilities they have to their shareholders. Because if you're trying to buy, a, a you know, a, you're going to take, say, a billion dollars of your capital, and you're going to allocate that to doing a share buyback, you know, the board has a responsibility to make sure that that's done responsibly from all shareholders, well, all stakeholders' perspective, sure. from this perspective, all shareholders' perspective. And the underlying goal of that is to buy as many shares as you can. I mean, all else being equal. Yeah. And obviously, uh, you know, cap will constrain the cost of doing that. And the products that, that, that I'm calling out, they don't, you know, they don't set out their ambition or their design is not um, you know, in line with 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 what everybody else in the market uses from the perspective of and, and very well well founded execution strategy. They're well founded in in academic research and and also you know an enormous amount of good practice. You know, they don't use that same product. So if if you look at the actual benchmark where the broker is benchmarked against and also remunerated against, because if they outperform this benchmark their fee structure is geared off the, the more you outperform, the more money they make one way or another. Mm-hmm. You know, those two things, they don't align with, with what the, the board's responsibility is to try and protect the shareholders. So, so that's where the, the issue is. So there's kind of like, there's four main concerns, but that's number one is sort of the governance problem for the, uh, the boards. And pretty much all the boards, they are completely unaware of this problem. Because there's no transparency or very limited transparency for shareholders and for the market to be able to, to see the structures and the behaviors of these programs, particularly in the U.S. Uh, right. so, you know, so it takes somebody who has been across the wall, if you like, and seen what the structures look like to go, you know, and you've got to be someone who, who's experienced in execution. So when I take this these products and I explain them to, you know, the, the normal institutional cl- uh, buy side, they're horrified because they're, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're like, what? No, <laughs> this is, yeah. So they can immediately see the problem. So it's a, so in, in some sense, the problem is about basic misalignment of incentives, or at least that's a big part it's of that. Completely problem, right? misalignment yes. of yeah. incentives. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly that. And one other question I have about um, buybacks, and then I'll pass it back to Ronan um, so he doesn't feel left out. Uh, I'm going to fucking uh, remove this part anyway. <laughs> is that it's been several years, but there was a long period of time where uh, it, it, corporate buybacks were big, hot political issue in the U.S., um, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot Very of concern old. about companies um, uh, spending too much of their uh, their own capital in buying up shares, Suggestion that in many cases, really for the benefit of corporate insiders, um, rather than and then for other folks, uh, and um, that seems to have 
uh, died down. Um, some of there was also concern that much of the during sort of the big bull market period that too much of the you know upward movement in overall market prices was driven by that activity and dependent on it. Is that s- still from your perspective? It, it feels like some of that chatter has fallen away. Is um, are those kinds of uh, concerns as present in the in the U.S. and the U.K. and where how do you, how do you think about those issues today? I mean, I, I'm an execution guy, so I'm not a I'm not a corporate finance or, or a banking guy, but yeah. I, I know what you're talking about. I've read a lot about it, and and it's really interesting when you when you read articles in the press. There's been quite a lot of um, articles in in various different parts of the of the press, and you know, particularly like the the FT and the Sunday Times and the Wall Street Journal. Quite often, you could read the comment section below. <laughs> it's really yeah. To Just see straight how, there. Yeah. Yeah. How, how much sort of uh, you know how divisive share buybacks are. But I don't think, certainly through my lens, uh, it doesn't appear to be too much of a problem from the perspective of so long as the governance within the organizations you know, understand those dynamics. And I think they really, really understand those dynamics. That problem behind the scenes, I think, is very well handled from my sort of outside looking in process. But the reason I think it's so, it is so divisive is because when you think about from a corporate finance perspective, why do companies do share buybacks and sort of like what ac- actions can they take which sort of, which involve share buybacks? You know, if you're doing a share buyback because you think your stock price is really, really cheap, it's sort of like mm-hmm. a form of, you know, you're, you're allocating some capital yep. back to buying your own shares as a form of investment. It's a very different type of transaction to one if you're trying to change your the structure of your balance sheet, right? So if you buy back shares and if you issue debt and buy back shares, you can leverage your company up more. And that's very different to one where if you've got excess capital and you're just trying to return it to shareholders and mm-hmm. instead of instead of paying more dividend, you might you know return it through doing a share buyback. All three of them are very, very different rationales as the, the SEC would call them. But what you can't escape from is the whole thing is one ecosystem. So if you're doing a share buyback to return excess capital, you're still buying shares, and that's still the share price matters. It's still an investment. And hidden in all of this process is, Warren Buffett explains it very well, but the price at which the shares are bought back, it is really, really important relative to the intrinsic value of the company. So if if the share price is is way above the fair value or the intrinsic value, the business value, what's happening is, Wealth is transferring from the long-term shareholder to the selling shareholder. And obviously, the governance process needs to make sure that that doesn't happen because sure. you know, the, the, board, yeah, the, the purpose is to try and create long-term shareholder value, right? So, so you can't do that. That's very clear. Did, did, did you understand that? Completely. Okay. I, I learned that. I always read the comments at the end first. <laughs> I barely ever read the fucking article. Now, I have a question, Mike, based on something you said earlier, um, and maybe I misinterpreted, but let me ask the question as it, uh, you know, with regards to fees. So what these public companies pay the brokers in order to execute these things. It sounds like you're saying they're shelling out more than they probably should be to buy back their shares. And what are your thoughts on what the industry or regulators should be doing differently to sort these issues out? A long question. Were you saying before when they buy back their shares, the brokers have to adhere to like a, a benchmark? Like I think it's in the US, it's like VWAP. Are you saying that depending on how the broker performs relative to VWAP, they can charge the public company more? Did I make that up? Uh, you didn't make that up. Uh, okay. 
I thought I heard you say it. I I had never heard that before. Mm -hmm. There was about eight questions in. That's that's how we roll on boxes and lines. Yeah, Yeah, you can answer any of them. Yes. I mean, we we give you, yeah. You can just tell me why the circuit to Mawa is 350 microseconds. So, (laughs) So the last question was about the benchmark. Like, there isn't any... There, there isn't any requirement for anybody to achieve a benchmark, but the way quite a lot of these products are structured is that if the broker outperforms that, I, what I call the bogus benchmark, but it, you know, yeah. it, it's an execution benchmark, then the broker gets to charge a, uh, you know, the fee structure it's is okay. the broker might say, okay, well, I will guarantee you, the corporate, a 1% outperformance to that benchmark anything beyond that I keep mm-hmm. as a broker or anything beyond that, you know, we get a 50, 50 share. So they're incentivized to a beat the benchmark yep. and b, you know, the more they beat it, the greater their, the greater their fears. So in, in principle, I've got absolutely no problem with that, you know, in terms of, you know, that's a great way to align the interest of the corporate and the broker, but, but it has to be conditional on that benchmark needs to actually reflect what's good for their underlying shareholders and the corporate themselves. The problem is it's not. So the reason I I said I don't want to get into the details of the actual benchmark itself, but it's not what you and I would know as VWAP. VWAP stands for Volume Weighted Average Price. It's not that. It's called that. Yeah. I thought it was that. You obviously thought it was that too. Yeah, me too. (laughs) It's not not what institutional people know as VWAP. It's something very, very different. It's a T-WAP with a wobbly end time, which if you think about that, mm. makes it very, very easy to beat. If price goes T-wop down, I like the name wobbly of, end time. I, I, like I like the name of that mm-hmm. algorithm. Yeah. T-WAP with a wobbler. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, yeah. to, to, to beat it, the, the way the structures work is the broker has to guarantee to finish the program no earlier than 75 days after they start and no later than, say, 125 days after they start. I'm making oh, these right. number yeah. of days up. And then... The broker has latitude to finish at any point inside that 50-day window. So, you know, obviously, if the share price is going down, they can speed up. If it rallies, they can slow down. And if it's below the average towards the end, they finish at the inside window. If it's above the average, they drag it out to the last day. And if you look at how these things work, uh, that's exactly what happens. And if you think about that from a from a from a corporate's perspective, the alignment doesn't. No, it, it's, it's completely wrong relative to what you know the corporate should be getting, which is you know more sh- more shares and all that sort of stuff. It that is no work. It right. seems very gameable. Hmm. It's incredibly gameable, yeah. and you, you can look. So, one of the things I look at, and actually one of the things which is very very different, and it sort of comes to another part of the question you just asked me. What's very different in Europe and in the UK is the transparency laws we have with regards to daily trading activity, require the corporate to publish um, as they progress, quite frequently as they progress. Like in the mm. UK, it's T plus one, trading day plus one. So if you, did a, if you did a trade in your own shares today, tomorrow morning before the open, you've got to tell the market, yesterday I bought you know, 100,000 shares at $52, or whatever it was, right? So that trade level detail, daily trade level detail, is really helpful because people like 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 me and, and and investors can look at the footprint from the trading activity and from the footprint you can tell an awful lot. You can see well what style of execution is the broker using, 
how much value have they spent to date, and all those sorts of things. Whereas in the U.S., that's currently not true. And, and right, the SEC- right. Well, there is. Well, that the SEC did has you know within the last year, I think, taken action. And I know because I keep up with these things. Former um, regulator. Much, here yes, we go. I, I used to be. I don't know if you know Mike. I did have a senior. Um, much job like his shit Irish accent. This comes yeah. up in everyone. Yeah. Does but, your uh, cup they- just have liquidity and handwritten? Did you make that? It does. <laughs> It Mike's drinking like, from a cup are, that says liquidity. Mm-hmm. That's classic. It does. You guys are too stingy, stingy to send me send me any beer, so I, I thought I had to. I, <laughs> we I can't. There's in. laws. There are laws that prohibit us we, from we, sending. We, we sent it. Your son's drank it off. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. That's very true. They, they, they just wobbled by the door there. They're like, all right, Dad. <laughs> That's classic. Oh. He made his own liquidity. I've never seen that before. <laughs> Sorry, back to what the former the, SEC the guy. I don't what know. The question? You were about to no, jump no, in and say, to say the that SEC the SEC doing has something. recently adopted um, uh, changes that require the reporting of uh, uh, daily activity uh, in terms of uh, buyback, but it's substantially delayed, as I understand it. I think it's like, you know, sort of quarterly, uh, quarterly or biannually it's or something a, like that's that. That's a really good delay. The, the uh-huh. delay, I think the design of the, of, of the SEC's and transparency laws are superb. The, the problem is, is the Chamber of Commerce, I think, have, are currently challenging them. And, and the whatever you guys call your fifth circuit court of appeals, I don't understand oh, how you're Oh, yes, yes, the fifth yeah. circuit, exactly. Well, there's a lot of gamesmanship in terms of where you back. challenge these things to try to, yeah. Yeah, find so it. It, looks, it looks like they might not go through. But the, the delay is really smart because if we think about all of the problems in share buybacks, there's a governance problem. The board needs to ask the right questions. The, the second um, component is there's a, you know, a product problem. So we shouldn't allow this specific problem products to be sold. Particularly in the US, you've got a product called ASRs or accelerated share repurchases. Mm-hmm. They're super terrible for, for mm-hmm. corporates and share, and share buybacks, but they're loved, I think, by some segments of the uh, corporate market. But yeah, I wish I could help people understand why they're yeah. so bad. Uh, but then there's sort of there's an issue around the disclosure rules. The ones in in the UK, which I'm, I'm very glad the SEC you know, don't have. But on T plus one, you don't just tell the company, you don't just tell how many shares you bought. So you think about it before you start. I'm going to buy a billion pounds worth of my stock. Uh-huh. You tell the whole market that. Then on Trade day two, you tell the market, yesterday I bought, you know, five million pounds worth of my stock at this uh-huh. price. So, uh-huh. and not only that, but you also have to give what we call time and sales in the industry. So you have to tell every single X lot. So I bought 300 shares on the LSE at 12. I bought 500 shares on Aquas at 15, right? Are you it's serious? Like all the way wow. down. It sounds like the Chamber of Commerce would really hate that regime. I mean, if they, they well, thought it, what the SEC was doing was. That's nuts. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's way too transparent. So yeah. if, you're a, yeah. if you're a trader or a market maker and you want to know, well, what time, you know, yesterday and the day before and the day before that did the buyback start? You can see at 8.04 they start and, you know, at 16.29, which is one minute before our closing auction, they finish. Uh, on an average, they buy this many shares and this or that. They buy it on these three venues, but they don't buy it on all the others. You can see everything. It's just fantastic transparency, but its timeliness is appalling. 
Yeah, uh, and it's very, very disruptive. Interesting. Disrupt- well, you you touched on another aspect of equity market structure over here, which is why people, if they're big enough, they got enough money, they challenge any um, regulatory change they don't like in court because I think they figure, you know, yep. why not? Uh, if you can get away with it, and you don't really care about your relationship with your regulator. But anyway, I'm sorry, I don't mean to. But, but the, I want to get the on issue, my soapbox. Yeah. The issue with the if the challenges uphold in, in the U.S. is your you're you're never going to see in the US, the terrible destructive value and loss, you know, the, the value loss mm-hmm. to shareholders, because you can't, without the data, you can't analyze it. It's, it's um, just a black so box. The, the data all, in yeah. the US is lacking, but the data in the UK is great, but too soon. It's way too soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah it should be quarterly delay. I think is is perfect. Fix this That's shit, John. Well, I, you know, it's you not my, every it's not my job. Men. It's not my job to fix it. This ridiculous. How do the how do the public companies react when you tell them this? Like, they, I mean, this respectfully, but we were in the listings business. They didn't know a lot of this stuff. In it's, fairness, it's enough. really interesting. I, I kind of put them into two camps. Yeah. So camp one is the the camp which actually feels it. Like when I go in and see them, it's like Mike. We're happy to talk to you about how we think about our share buybacks, but we're super unsophisticated. We don't use any of this algorithm stuff. And we're like, we really, you know, we're all spreadsheet based and we know we're miles behind. So it would be great. Maybe we can learn something from you. But, you know, we're very unsophisticated. So don't expect too much. So I get in and talk to them. And these guys do it absolutely 100% right. They have share price levels, which they care at. They buy it responsibly. They rotate through brokers. They take days off. They do exactly what you would expect. Uh, and very similar, actually, to how you know institutional investors yeah. w- would handle a thing, but they present very, very defensively, and and so you know I, I ask lots of questions, and then I sort of say, do you mind if I if I make some comments, and then I tell them, you know, tell them why I think they're doing it right, and then I ask them why, out of curiosity, don't you buy these packaged products from the brokers? And they get give me usually one or two answers. Is either we can't commit to the the program in terms of it's a total lack of flexibility. If we want to be able to slow down our our share buyback or stop it, or sometimes they fund it from cash flow anyway. So we just can't, you know, we don't know. You know so it's, it's either the flexibility issue or it's it sounds a bit too good to be true. I don't really trust the guys who sell it to me. They don't explain it very well. And I typically don't buy things I don't understand. And then when I explain it to them and I go, <laughs> It was a good call. They walk out of the room just going, oh, thank you so, so much. Like, yeah. you've really put me at ease, all this stuff. But from my perspective, I, I've got a consultancy business. Like, they're, they're not a potential client of mine because they're doing it absolutely right, and they should keep on going. And they shouldn't add another layer of cost just to be comfortable, right? They're, 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 they've got it bang on. So the other end of the uh, sort of spectrum are, are, you know, a lot of corporates buy these products, right? Because they're sold very, very well. They sound fantastic from the, mm-hmm. from the, from, you know, from the way they're pitched. And, uh, you know, obviously bankers are pretty good salespeople, right? So, so they do a good job. And then when I, when I sort of listen and go, why? And, I, and, and some of these guys are, are, they really do understand the products well and, and understand how to limit all the optionality down by narrowing the window and it, all, all that sort of, they get it trying to maximize the discount they get, all that sort of stuff. But then when I sort of explain it to them and sort of walk them through it and go, you know, you do realize and, you know, we, we go through the whole thing and then I actually tell them, you know, that you're actually selling your interim volatility at a discount and the way that you model it all out and Monte Carlo theory, all this sort of the detailed stuff that you've got to get into to try and help them understand it. They literally turn around and say, hey, Mike, 
you're the first person who's ever told me this. And then I, I sort of go, oh, you know, we sort of go through the process. And I've had one guy literally tell me, who else knows this? Like <laughs> um, everybody who's in execution understands how this process is. The whole industry out there who know how to do this. He said, "Yeah, but who else knows this in this share buyback world?" I'm like, "I don't know." You said, "Well, you're the only guys ever mention it to me." <laughs> I buy my products from, and they name all the ABC banks, right? So I'm good because I'm buying it from the IBM of the world, right? They can't sell me false products. I'm like. I, I, I don't know, <laughs> but I can tell you. <laughs> they fucking can. <laughs> you're putting your board at risk. Let me just put it that way. And, and I'd love to be able to help. Shall we go and have a meeting with, the, with your broker? I'd love to be able yeah. And they, they obviously shy away from that because they don't want to upset the apple cart. I get that. Or they just don't want to go and talk to their board because their board won't be happy when they find out. That's for mm, sure. Mm. Yeah. Well, what am I going to do? Yeah. You don't think they're not met with, um, I mean, I would imagine – not that I sit on the board of a public company right now, but I would give the investor relations person or whoever is responsible for that kudos if they came and they, they found a different way. Well, I come from your like, school. I, I, yeah. yeah. And they, the, the interesting bit, this one chap who was really helpful to, to me to help me explain. He, he said, Mike, but you don't understand. One of the reasons I got hired into this company is because I had 10 years of share buyback experience. I actually got picked in part by the board to help because this company wanted to start doing share buyback. I, well, I get it, but it's not your fault if you're buying a product from a trusted service provider that just the product isn't appropriate. You're not meant to understand. Like, do you know who you're dealing with? Like, these products are priced off the derivative desks of large investment banks. And I personally don't think a CFO or a head of treasury is meant to understand how you know derivative desks price product. They're not meant to understand the sort of the volatility value within it, within these types of products. They're not meant to understand how trading floors extract value from flow. Like that's not their business. They're accountants yeah, or corporate finance guys, right? So I don't think, well, for the low, I can't say for everyone, but certainly the people I've spoken to, I don't think they, they're just not equipped because they're experts in something else. But it's true too that the bankers I've met, like the the bankers being the corporate advisors, they also don't understand how the trading floors extract value from flow. They don't get it. When I explain it to them, they go, oh, you know, they, they're the first people to put their hands up and say, yeah, I know nothing about execution. I yeah. understand, you know, finance. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, then if the guy who's selling yeah. the product doesn't understand it, the guy who's buying it doesn't understand it, then you're really well, kind of screwed. Yeah, but, but, That's but, why you yeah, need some yeah, candor. See, that's that's why you need some candor. Exactly. Yeah, that's where the name yeah, came that's from. Why you need, yeah, hence my name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. how that but also the, the tax advisors, the, I spent quite a lot of time with the lawyers because, you know, the legal teams in the, in the sort of like these huge, big, large um, legal firms, they spend a lot of time structuring the, 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 the contract documents for doing these transactions. And they're also reasonably unique in so far as they're a trusted advisor to the executives and, uh, and the board members. So when I explain it to that group of people, they go, ah, because mm-hmm. they're about the only group who are not conflicted. So are, are there, I mean, back to your background, like electronic trading, right? And, you know, you saw the electronification of a lot of these trading desks and how things went from cash traders to algos. You know, is there any correlation to this business where are there, are there newer entrants coming out who will do this execution better and, you know, tout... AI and technology and all this other nonsense, right? That, 
you know, it's the yeah, new I, fucking I plastic, but like there, I, there's got to be something. I followed that whole, that whole trick from being a cash trader to being a program trader, to being at the algo guy, to being the server, uh, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, yes. In short, the brokers who don't have derivative desks don't have any conflicts. All right. And they don't have their bankers don't have. They're like, they're like the equivalent of the agency brokers versus full yeah. service. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and there's, there's tons of those people yeah. uh, who do a really, really good job. The challenge is the larger the transaction gets, if you flip that around and you think about if you're the CFO in a, a or you know, the deal team within a corporate and you're sold a product which basically guarantees you outperformance to what you think is the industry benchmark, it's a great product from that perspective. It gives you a huge amount of comfort. Yep. Whereas if you go to an agency broker who sort of goes, well, you know, the execution is kind of like market dependent. And right, which one are you going to go to? The one which gives you a guarantee that you can say up to your board, yeah, hey, look, we're going to get not just the average price. We're going to always outperform the average price by at least 50 basis points or 20 basis points or 100, whatever that, whatever that number we is. Check the box and you everyone can, moves on. You can never yeah. be wrong. Right. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of the old saying, you know, that I always used to hear oh, back in the day. This, this should be good. That, <laughs> that well, yeah, and you'll appreciate this, having come from Goldman, too, that I'm saying was that one of the reasons that Goldman always um, stayed number one in terms of investment banking break, rankings is no CFO was ever going to get fired for picking Goldman to do the job, right? I mean, if you pick somebody else um, and then you much face much greater risks of being second guessed. But regardless, regardless, uh, yeah, regardless, uh, this is a great transition, John. <laughs> See how we did that? This is a, this is a podcast pro, Mike. Yeah. But there's, there's one other thing which I think is relevant to you guys is that the fourth thing, which I think we need to figure out as an industry is the way these structures work right now and the way the safe harbor rules are written. Shareholders can't sell into the corporate buyback in any of these what's called open market or OMR um, style transactions, or indeed ASRs either, right? So the way the structure works, the broker has to buy shares on exchange, whichever exchange that is. So the selling shareholder can't ever actually sell the shares, which the corporate wants to buy back from them directly to them. It's kind of insane. So <laughs> if you think about the right way to do these transactions, if you've got a very, very large transaction to do, and you're a corporate and the share price is attractive to you, you should be able to buy blocks of stock through exchanges like IEX and not fall foul of any market abuse rules because you know it's within the confines of a, of a, of a regulated exchange and all that sort of stuff. Like, you should be able to do that. We should solve for that. That's good for shareholders, good for investors, good for corporates. Uh, that's what we should, we should be solving for. Well, we're for anything that um, brings more orders to exchanges and IEX in particular. <laughs> As we talked about earlier in your intro, you've over 30 decades of experience in the industry. Um, how did your roles at Goldman and Virtu prepare you for candor? You know, like leaving big organizations within the industry to create something like candor, which I guess, can, why do I keep calling it candor? Candor, candor. Do you meet with resistance from people you used to work with? Like, do people think you're selling out doing something different? Yeah, the, the, so the, the background stuff has been in terms of, of uh, it was 30 years, not yeah. 30 decades, by the way. Did I say 30 decades? I, I, I almost said seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. like 300 years older. But yeah. I feel like that at some what, what I find really exciting in the sort of the candor journey is, is just that it's, it's 
you know, I'm sure you've probably figured this out as well. When you, when you found something, you really do put yourself out in a limb. Yeah. You learn a lot about things that you never thought you'd be doing from talking to journalists directly. Like I try to get awareness built and all those sorts of things. This is a problem that I never had to deal with uh, myself before. But in terms of dealing with my sort of peers and uh, previous peers, that's really interesting because when I explain why I'm doing it, and, and the, the really the sort of never really sort of spoke about the real reason why I sort of started down this journey, but it's really to try and help corporates bring down their cost of transacting. And the reason why that's important is because you probably remember this from, from when we introduced market competition in Europe in MIFID 1. Yep. But if you can bring the cost of transacting down, you bring a whole new bunch of players to the market and you do wonderful things. And we took execution frictional costs down to about 20% of what they used to be there in the MIFID 1 process. If we can do that for corporates, you know, when they issue shares and when they buy back shares, you know, that changes, I think, a lot the sort of like the attractiveness of our public markets. At the moment, we're competing with private markets, right? All of us need, you know, more, uh, you know, companies listing on, on public markets. Like, why do retail trade for free? Institutions trade for 10 bips or 5 bips or 3 bips? And corporates trade for 3% to 10% when they issue? And somewhere between 5 bips and 8.5% is what I've found for doing share buybacks. Like, that's terribly destructive to the capital. So when I explain that to my peers, they go, ah, okay, that's really helpful because yeah. everybody's worried about why did, you know, in the UK, why did ARM list in New York, right? You know, that, 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 that was an issue for us. And we're all looking, what can we do? It's pretty simple. Like one of the things we all have control over is we can bring that cost down. So I'm collaborating with, with, a, with a lot of firms. There's a small little firm called Squarebook, which is dealing with the other end of that problem, if you like, trying to help corporates to, you know, list and issue shares that side of the equation, you know, there's lots of innovation in that world. If you think about the IPO side of the world, when was the last time there was any f innovation in that or, or sort of new technology in that business? I genuinely think, I'm being a little bit facetious, but I think the last time there was proper innovation in that side of the world was when, you know, the Eric Dobkins of the world and all those characters sort of introduced the syndication process of, of the underwriting risk and the green shoe and all that stuff. Jesus. Mm -hmm. like, the green shoe. Yeah, I you, know about you, the green did shoe. You, did you issue that, John? Uh, no, I did not. We're talking uh, decades, many decades ago. 30 decades, yeah. like Mike? Yeah, yeah probably, yeah, lot, many decades. <laughs> yeah, like, yes. like, like 30 decades. Green I think shoe. Green shoe. that was the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s. I want to say 80s, because I think green shoe comes from the name of a court case, I think, but it's basically, yeah, yeah, no, I know be, what you're but, talking about. But, but just think, it's a long think time what ago. technology has done and innovation has done to the rest of the trading markets and, like, and, and you know, everything. Like you guys are talking in sort of millis, micros, nanos, <laughs> and we're still talking about, about like there hasn't been a single proper innovation. So if you get modern auction theory and all that sort of stuff into the allocation process, and you, know, you can really change things. Like we tried direct listings a while ago, but they seem to be very out of focus. You could argue that's a, an innovation. Mm -hmm. um, but but it really, I think there's a lot of space and a lot of goodness we could, you know, if we're going to allow competition right. in there, there's a lot of good things that could happen, which would really And, and then you had all like, blank, you know, sort of spade of blank check companies that generally didn't turn out too well. So it's right. like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Well, we got to, we got to ask our, um, our question at the end. If the Wall Street bull came to life and could talk, what words of wisdom <laughs> or advice do you think it would share? 
Is this the first time you've heard this question? (laughs) (laughs) It would, from his expression, it would seem so. Yeah. Um, I guess it would sort of depend on where the, where the, where the bull comes from, wouldn't it? Because. Let's put the bull in Canary Wharf. So, so, (laughs) well, so if the bull was from Cork in Ireland, (laughs) I think it would be quite a genial, pleasant chap, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm He'd probably lean over and whisper and say, Ira, you should be careful here around here, boy. And, you know, <laughs> suggest good Irish maybe, you should, maybe you should move out of the way. This is the, yeah. since, since this is the podcast of terrible accents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but if Bill was sort of like a 1970s New York taxi driver as portrayed in sort of Hollywood movies, mm-hmm. presumably it would be like, hey, get the fuck out of here. Very good. Trying to be a bit more blunt, but I don't mm-hmm. know. No idea. I can't imagine the bull would say anything particularly wise, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, it's as good an answer as any. So, are we going to give this man some socks or what? You're going to get some socks for that. They probably cost us triple the cost of the socks to send them over to England. Uh, probably. That's probably but, right. But, but, but it'll you, be well worth them. it. Well worth it. We listen. We appreciate you joining us on this podcast. Uh, from one founder to another, I know it's a difficult thing and it's a brave step to take. And we wish you the best. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts. They're, 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 they're amazing. He's they, shaking they, his head no as he said that. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. We gotta, Over and out. Over and out, no. Are you a diehard boxer or liner or just a fair weather fan? No judgments. I know how annoying JR's Irish accent can be. Either way, we want to hear from you on our new Boxes and Lines listener survey to find out what you think about the show, give input on future episodes, guests, and more. We'll take it back to our survey counter thingy machine and consider all of your inputs as we plan our 2024 season. You can find the survey at iex.getfeedback.com slash boxesandlines. And don't worry, there's something in it for you. That's my drum roll. JR could probably do it better. You get a pair of socks. That's right. Take the survey. We'll send you a pair of our coveted box and line socks while supplies last in a new limited edition print. How's that for listener appreciation? So take the survey. Tell us what you think. And thanks for listening. Again, that's iex.getfeedback.com slash boxes and lines over and out. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Daisy Clace. With support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. <laughs>